0: Morning, church. Morning. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you're visiting Christ church today, my name's Mark and I'm one of the ministers, and we're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we've been looking at this book, uh, and we've entitled our series, Building on Hope, because it's a letter that Peter wrote early Christians who were going through difficult times, how to remain faithful and what to keep in mind. Uh, one of the, the key notes that I want to catch up over the last... Uh, Eight weeks leading into today that we need to remember to understand this letter is that uh, Peter is not calling us uh, to do things. He's calling us to be a kind of person. And there's a big difference between the religious pursuit of doing the right things and the Christian pursuit of becoming a new person in Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today as we continue uh, on in this journey of what it means to live by hope, especially as we face the reality that things don't always go well. Uh, I'd like to share with you just personally, and maybe you're a little bit like me, sometimes I assume you are, I hope that's not offensive, and other times I realize you're nothing like me and you ought to thank God for that. And, uh, but in my lifetime I've realized whenever I've been challenged or threatened, and I thought about that this week, certain things in my life uh, that have been difficult to face. The first time my dad put me in a roller coaster with him by challenging me to say, to be a big boy, and I got in a roller coaster and they strapped that bar over my chest and put the seatbelt around me, and about halfway up the incline, I wanted out. And I told myself these words, this won't last forever, it can't. And I survived it. I'd like to tell you that I've overcome that fear, but no, I still go on roller coasters, and on the way up, I tell myself over and over, this will end, this will end, this will end, this will end, it can't last forever. When I get the first time I ever sat in a dentist's office, and he pulled out a needle the length of my body and told me to relax... This won't last forever. First time a doctor wanted to give me a shot and asked me where I wanted it, my leg or my arm, and I looked and said, my mom. (laughs) And uh, he stuck me anyway. Punishments. My father said, Mark, lay over my lap. I'd been warned, and I knew this was coming. And I knew I was going to get three or four swats and an explanation between each one of them. And I kept telling myself, this can't last forever. I remember football two-a-days showing up in August when the ground is hot at eight in the morning. There's no real grass. It's all weeds that survived, and the coach is not in a good mood because he doesn't want to be there either. And I remember telling myself, at the end of this day, I'm going to get to go home and take a cold shower and eat good food. This can't last forever. Are you with me on that? Have you had those moments? where you've told yourself, when it gets tough, I, I can get through this because this is only, only for a moment. It's going to be hard, but it's a moment. <clears throat> then as I get older, I become a little more sentimental because the truth is there are certain things in my life that I have to say this won't last forever, and that makes me sad. It doesn't give me strength. I think about the fact that I won't last forever, and that sometimes makes me sad. Other times, it makes me very happy. Uh, you know, whenever I look at how much I owe people, i Say, I won't be here forever, maybe I'll win this game. <laughs> and then other times I see people having a good time and I see my kids being growing older and I think, think about having grandchildren and I, I get sad that I won't be here forever. Or when I look and my son took off in January to go with CIY and he travels with them doing some production stuff and he's learning how to do that and they're very gracious to let him and he took off in January and he's probably been in our house maybe 30 days from January through August. And I think, I need to enjoy him while he's here because he won't be here in our house with us in day-to-day life much more. So that's not going to last forever, and that's not good. I think about friendships I've had that were very close to me, and we're still close, but we just don't have time together or conversations, we're not doing life together, and those don't always last forever. I don't mean to be melancholy, But I want us to understand that the statement, this won't last forever, gets us through tough times, and it also reminds us of valuable times, doesn't it, church? It's a powerful statement. I believe you could summarize Peter's letter to the early church with that phrase, this won't last forever, but Jesus will. And when we get that figured out, this letter can speak to us even today, thousands of years later. In this particular passage of 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to talk about three encouragements that Peter gives us about new things that the resurrection brings to us. So let's deal with them quickly. Number one, there's a new power that comes through the hope of the resurrection. It's a new power. And and if you're living in this world and paying attention at all, you realize that willpower and self-power and your personality don't get you much. We need something bigger than the economy of this world We need something bigger than the governments of this world, the wars of this world, and the evil of this world. I am not enough to handle what comes to me. But through this power that I have, Jesus Christ is. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Therefore, and allow me to use my English minor one more time. Remember when you see the word therefore, it's correspondent to everything that's been written previous. This is not a separate issue. Peter isn't moving on to a new topic. He's writing to them and saying from all the things that I've told you so far over the last eight weeks, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. It's a pretty intense passage, but if we can make two steps <clears throat> to understand this, I think we'll be okay. First of all, just a little bit of insight going into this. Please understand when we talk about suffering, to try to avoid suffering is natural. There's nothing ungodly about trying not to avoid going through a period of suffering. But we must understand that you can't avoid all of it, that there will be moments of hard times that come upon us that we can't escape. You see, and he says to have the same attitude that Jesus had when suffering was inevitable, when it could not be taken from them, what would they do? It reminds us of the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but your will be done. That was the attitude Jesus chose to have. God, if you let me go through this, I may not want to, and I'm not going to like it, but if you have me go through it, I'll go through it. That's what faith looks like. That's the same attitude that Jesus had. Not my will, but yours be done. And let's clarify for, for the sake of argument in the room today, I want to encourage you with this but I, because how we face suffering and how we face obedience indicates what we think of God. Let me say that again. How you and I choose to face moments of obedience is an exact uh, depiction of how we see God. We have a God who doesn't want us to have a good time, or do we have a God who wants to protect us? You see, whenever God says you must do this, he's not trying to take our will from us. He's not giving us busy work. God doesn't say, I want you to go to a certain mountain five times a day and say these things over and over and over again so you don't get in trouble. No, God doesn't give us busy work. When God tells us not to do something or to do something, there is a huge purpose behind that, and that purpose is always to bless us. It's what uh, philosophers call an ethical prescription. Let me state it this way. If God says, do not lie, and do not be bitter, and do not have sex outside of marriage, and don't spend all your money on yourself, but love your neighbor, pray for your neighbor, and encourage even your enemy, God is telling us something about the way we're designed. So here's what it reflects. Here's what this ethical prescription is when God says do and don't. God says, if you break my do's and don'ts, you only break yourself. My father told me one time, I remember the age. We lived in our old house, so it had to be before fourth grade. My father told me not to put a knife into an electric outlet. He read my mind. And I thought, I'm a person of free will. How dare you tell me what to do? I realized, after putting said knife into said outlet, that based on the laws of electricity and human physiology, I had a bad idea. It blew me backwards, my arm hurt for a week, and my dad laughed. Now, my dad didn't say, I'm going to take away your will to do what you want. My dad told me not to do it because it wasn't good for me. My father knew something I didn't know. When God gives us a chance to obey and even suffer, it depicts clearly in our hearts what we think of God when he tells us to do that or not to do that. Because if we have a God who's a restriction to our fun... We don't have a God. We have a genie that we rub the lamp and he gives us what we want. But if we really want a God, we have a God who says, I'm going to even allow you to suffer so that I can make you into the person you desire to be. Continuing in verse 1, he, Peter even has a unique phrase He says, He who suffers is done with sin. Uh, what does he mean there? I want to be cautious. I, I, I'm not trying to come down on the church today. I'm a part of this. I live in the same reality. But a lot of us say, I don't want to suffer. Yeah, nobody wants to suffer. But God says, even if I let you suffer, there's a purpose, which we're going to show at the end of this chapter. There's a purpose for your suffering. But here's what, what Peter's telling us. If we should suffer and suffer well with God, that our appetite for sin is diminished, there's something that God does through the joy of suffering and the completion of it that reduces our appetite for sin. Now, many of us say, I don't know if I believe that. And If I can be so direct, let me respond to that theoretical question. I don't know if I believe that. The reason you don't know if you believe it is because you've not suffered. You've probably abandoned every chance to suffer. You've probably escaped from suffering to pleasure. And so you don't know, and I don't know, that at the other side of suffering comes a diminished appetite for sin, which is what Peter clearly says, which is very interesting to me. You see, when we do the will of God, last week we talked about there are times that we knock a lamp off a table by accident. There was no intention. It just happened. We were at a, the wrong place, or, or we were running through the house, and it, it fell off the table, and it broke. And we say we feel bad about that. And we talked about those times that we throw a ball at a, a brother, and we break a lamp. And not only did we intentionally damage something, but we broke a rule in the house. Yet the reaction to both of those situations is similar. It's what do you do? Even if you choose, if you, if you knock the lamp off by accident, can you not make choices to take a different path next time so you don't accidentally hit the lamp? Of course you can. You can make choices all the time. And if you threw the ball at your brother in anger and you broke the lamp, violating two rules, don't break mom's lamp and don't try to kill your brother, can you make choices from that to repent and live differently? This is what Peter's saying. That if you want your appetite for sin diminished, then do the things of the Lord even if it causes you to suffer because he can diminish your appetite by teaching you the real joy and lasting pleasure of being holy. In verse 3, he gives examples of public, blatant, Acts of immorality. He says, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Notice that those aren't hidden sins. Those are those public sins that you do where you say, there is no right and wrong. If it makes me feel good, I'll do whatever I want. And Peter says, do you notice that the world gets, gets violent when you stand up to that behavior and say it's wrong? Have we all noticed that today, if you tell someone that what they want to do that brings them pleasure is not right, that it can cost you your job, and in some parts of the world your life, how dare you tell someone they can't live this way? Peter said, be aware that the appetite for sin is fed by sin, and the appetite for sin is diminished by holiness. So that's why he's calling us to live this new life with this new power, the power of the resurrection, the power to overcome, that those that will be judged by Jesus, the living and the dead, that we live with the new power that he gives us to overcome ourselves. Let's jump to the next one briefly. Not only is there new power, there's new life. And I think it's distinct what Peter does here for us in verses 7 through 9. He says, the end of all things is near." Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because of the chance of the restored kingdom, Peter says, because of the power of the resurrection and all the things that I've been telling you, he says, understand the end is near. And let me rephrase that. This won't last forever. And now he's saying this, the this is what? Our lives. Many of us are are throwing away the eternal to have the right now. And Peter's warning us, be aware, these are the last days that that our king is going to return and and judge the living and the dead. So I love what he tells us. He tells us three things here. Number one, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Think about the choices you're making in the last days. I think about it all the time. When Alex was a little peanut running around the house, I thought of the number of years we're going to have him in the house and how much fun it's going to be to see him grow up and play Little League and go to school and do all the things kids do. And I looked at it. Now he's he's going to be 21. And pretty soon he's going to be coming home and he's going to be talking to me about an apartment and a budget and where he goes after school and which jobs should he take. And and I, I just become depressed. But I have to start thinking now the opportunities I have with my son I need to cherish and and value, and use well. I need to be clear-minded and self-controlled. But Peter says, one of the reasons we do this is so we can pray. Now, please understand, we're gonna talk about prayer this coming spring, but prayer is not an obligation. If you feel like, oh, I gotta pray, don't. If if you are at home and and you said to your spouse, oh, we have to talk, how would that go? (laughs) Some of you do, how did that go? (laughs) You don't, If if you talk to your spouse or your children, to the same delight that you speak to God in prayer, what kind of relationship would you have? None. So it's not an obligation, it's an opportunity. And Peter says, these are the last days. Talk to God, because whether we like it or not, our spiritual vitality is directly correlated to how much we pray. If you're not talking with God, you're doing it yourself. If you're not in submission to God, you're a lone ranger, and you are primed to be picked off. We'll talk about that next week. Prayer is not an obligation. It's a powerful opportunity. In fact, I wonder when Peter wrote these words if he didn't remind himself of what was said in the Garden of Eden that night when Jesus said to him, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter had to have heard those words when he told us to pray and to be clear-minded and sober. Second, he tells us to love each other, which isn't surprising verse 8. It's not surprising at all that we're to love each other. John... Uh, they tell stories of when John was uh, was trapped in the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John, that he was such an old man that he could hardly hold himself up. And they would hold him up and they would say, give us the word of the Lord. And John would repeat these words over and over. Not a senile old man. He had boiled it down to its core. Love one another. Say, John, what does the Lord want from us? There's a new command I give you. Love one another. It doesn't surprise us at all that that's what we would hear. But Peter's telling us to love one another even when we're persecuted and times are hard. Why? In verse 8, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And I want, to, I want to be really clear with this verse. Love doesn't ignore a multitude of sins. Love doesn't say, because I love you, what you're doing is okay. Love covers over a multitude of sins because it forgives, because it encourages, because it strengthens. Read 1 Corinthians 13 and apply that to the person that you love the most and the least, and it can be applied both ways. But see, it doesn't justify or condone sin. It forgives sin and it encourages holiness and life. And then Peter tells us to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality means to use what I have for another's needs. Hospitality doesn't mean just have friends over and eat. It means to give your food away to those who may never invite you back to dinner. It means to take of the generosity of our God and offer it to others. Did you notice that when it comes to the new life, that everything that Peter tells us to do in the new life isn't about us, it's about everybody else? To pray, to love, to be hospitable and generous. Doesn't it just sound like the new life, the same life that Jesus lived, to have the same attitude that he had? to live that out. If you look at the early church in the book of Acts, it talks about what the early church did. They were famous even with their enemies' awareness. They were famous for giving what they had to anybody who had a need and not worrying about whether or not their needs were met because God would provide that too. It just sounds like the way we're supposed to live. In contrast to all the spirit of selfishness and our human desire to protect what we have, the new life causes us to be other-centric. It's about us It's not about me. And I I jokingly said this first hour, and I'll try it again. If your heart says, mine, you're two years old and need to grow up. We are. It's mine. I've worked for it. I've earned it. I have the right. You're correct. You're correct. You're correct, but you're not righteous. Because Jesus said, all I have. He gave up everything he had, all the best parts of heaven to come to the worst parts of earth for you and me so that we would have something, and that we would have something to offer, which takes me to the third point today. It's a new power, the power of the resurrection, to live losing the appetite for sin so that we can live a new life for others, and this brings us to a new ministry of hope. Verses 10 and following, the longest section of chapter 4 is really a reoccurring message where Peter's looping back and forth and keeps reminding us of what he's told us. He said, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to uh, serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do so as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. A couple of brief points here. It's a simple text. Peter says what Paul said and what Jesus said. Jesus said, There was a man who went away on a trip, and he left one person five, another person two, and another person one. He gave them these things to take care of. Jesus said, every one of us has been gifted. Apostle Paul says, everyone has been given a spiritual gift. Peter says, every one of us. Notice here, he says, every one of us has been gifted. Use whatever gift he has received. Why Why did we receive these gifts? To bless others. And how do we bless others? by faithfully administering God's grace. I learned this a long time ago. I remember it was a sixth grade, junior high Sunday school, uh, a guy named Bill Fusick. I love Bill Fusick for a lot of reasons. Every year on your birthday, he gave you silver dollars equal to the amount of your age. I was really bummed when I turned 12 and Bill left our church. I was making coin on that guy and he left. But I loved Bill because Bill was the first guy. Who used to, he used to say this all the time. I think he only had one sermon and it always sounded like this. Every gift God's ever given you is meant to be given away, including your life. I've never forgotten that since the time I was in sixth grade. Every gift that God's ever given me was not meant to be kept, but meant to be given away, including my life. And I don't know where Bill got that sermon, but it's worth preaching. Because this is exactly what Peter says. God has gifted us. And in verse 11, he tells us the the reason behind our, our ministry. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. And we're about him. Do you notice the equation? It's you and me for him. And that equation changes lives, and it changes futures, and it changes generations and nations. That when the church realizes it, and Christians understand this new ministry we have, that to him be the glory and power forever. It's not about building big churches and having fancy celebrity speakers. It's not about being the best. It's about being real and legitimate and faithful and honest and loving and generous. And when the church does that, it's Jesus' church. So we need to be careful that we call ourselves Christ church. What we need to live that out to its fullest and watch what God does. So, in light of being prayerful, loving, generous, gift sharing people, Peter cautions us at the conclusion here. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, It should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Peter is telling them this. This won't last forever. It won't. And if it's God's will, notice that he doesn't say every one of us suffers, but if you suffer for the kingdom, if it is God's will for you to go through a period of suffering, remember that it won't last forever, but he will. Christians... I said this about two or three weeks ago, and I want to be careful that you don't think I'm picking. Some of you smile and go, I know who you're talking about. Well, you can put a name and a face to however you want to do this, but I need to warn you as one of the pastors of this church, as a shepherd overseeing this flock, we need to say this clearly. You can listen to some poor theology today that will tell you that if you are faithful enough, the love of God and the beauty of God and the favor of God will shine on you every moment of your life. That God wants you to be rich and healthy and have no problems. And if you have enough faith, God can do that for you. But I need to tell you this. My Bible says that the early church suffered because they had faith, not because they didn't. So don't buy the lie that if your life is good, God is good. And don't buy the lie that if you have tough times, it's because you've done something wrong. No, it's because you have faith. Peter says, don't be surprised when the world jumps down your throat for standing up for what's true. So when preachers want to preach that if you follow God, everything works out, then God owes Jesus an apology because he died a homeless man with nothing and not a friend to surround him. So I tend to believe my Bible teaches me something different. The early Christians suffered because of their faith, not because of the lack of it. And so to trust God is a scary proposition. Let's go all the way back to chapter 1. Let's remember where we started in this letter. Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, refined by fire, may prove genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor. Peter's used two expressions throughout this letter. He's called them painful trials, and he's called them purifying fire. We know why the image of fire is used in scripture because you can take something that's a composite and you can put it in fire and those things that are valuable will stay alive in the fire and those things that are worthless will be burned away in the fire. That's what suffering is. That's Peter's picture. God is running you through a fire and all the things in your life and your character that you don't need are gonna melt away but all the things that are of God are gonna stand forever. God is with us in the fire. So he gives us three encouragements and I'd like to end this way this morning. In verse 12, he tells us, don't be surprised when life's hard. Now remember, there's times life's hard because we threw the ball and broke the lamp. And then there are times that life's hard because life's just hard. And the light is not welcomed in a dark world. I love the fact that Peter tells us, he doesn't say, don't grieve. He doesn't say, don't hurt. He says, he doesn't say even don't flinch. He says, stay faithful. Don't be surprised. I don't believe we'll ever handle suffering if you're surprised by it. This is why he told us to be clear-minded and sober in our thinking. To remember that this won't last forever. I, I remember so many times our coach getting mad at us at a football game and down, everybody down. I hate that term. And then I'm gonna put my face, when I'm sweating like a pig, in the hot Indiana soil with no grass. And every time I exhaled, that dust blew back in my face. And I remember over and over, but I knew why my coach put me through that. So I would be tougher and better and in better physical condition to compete. Don't be surprised when God strengthens you for the opposition. It's what God does because he loves us. Second thing, in verse 17, he tells us to obey. And again, I want to be a pastor and I want to tell you why I'm going to tell you what I say here these next few moments, when you go through trouble, all of us have the tendency to stop doing the right things and just coil up in a ball and quit. It's easy to stop praying when you're hurting. It's easy to stop being a part of the church and engaging in the community that brings you life. It's easy to not read the Word of God. In fact, it's really easy to do what I like to call escape sins. This is where we go out and get ourselves a little something because we're tired of hurting. And we go back to the old life. We start to drink or take medicines or engage in relationships we shouldn't be in because we're so tired of hurting. We want a little pleasure. We're trading the eternal for the things that don't last. Peter says, "Don't, don't quit, but obey." And then thirdly, he says to commit yourself to God and continue to do good. And I don't think those are separate The word commit used here by Peter means to make a deposit, to be all in. I guess the expression I've been told by some guys on staff that I say quite a bit is, is I'm betting my life on it. That's what it means to commit. It means to give yourself wholeheartedly to covenant. Because here's what I want you to understand. When we may have to suffer for the kingdom of heaven, remember that Jesus suffered socially. He had no friends who stood with him in his worst moment in life. Jesus suffered physically more than any other humans ever suffered. And Jesus suffered spiritually because our sins on him caused God to turn his face away. For the first time in his existence, from the beginning of all time, Jesus and God were separate. So here's the beauty of this. When you suffer and wonder, does God understand? He's the only person who does. And he looks at you and he says, I do know what you're going through. You see, here's a God who when He sees the suffering says, remember, this won't last forever, but I will. And my love and my mercy and my grace will wipe every tear from your eye, every regret, every fear. Some of the worst moments of our life we get through it by saying this won't last forever, it can't, it can't, this has got to end eventually. And some of our best moments in life are saddened by the fact that I need to enjoy it while I have it because this can't last forever either. So I need to ask you a question this morning. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit on them and people are going there in just a moment to meet with you, to encourage you, to pray with you. If you need someone to pray with you this morning or, or you want to get in to this life with Jesus and you don't even know where to begin, don't be embarrassed. If you leave here ignorant, it's a choice. But you can know what the Bible desires of you As we sing in a moment, go to these tables or if that makes you uncomfortable, after the service go to one of these tables and find someone there and say, I have a question I need to be prayed with, can you help me? We'd love to do that for you. Because this life won't last forever but our time with God in eternity will. So which is worth investing in? Which is worth giving ourselves to? Because should we hold on to the hope in Jesus Christ, his resurrection becomes our resurrection and together we learn to live the life we're supposed to live. Let's stand together.